So I'd like you, if you would, to open your Bibles to two different places, one at a time. The first one is in the middle of the Bible, in the book of Psalms. It's chapter 22, and then we're going to be uh, toward the end of the Bible. We're going to be, or toward, yeah, toward the end of the Bible in Revelation 19. But if you would, please open your Bibles to Psalm 22. There's a Bible app event for this sermon that you can follow along with, okay? I want to begin by telling you a joke. I know it's a lame joke, but I'm going to tell it anyway, okay? I know you've probably heard it before, but I'm still going to tell it. I want to say that it involves a Catholic priest, and I mean no disrespect at all. It's just a funny little story, and uh, it helps uh, focus on the, the idea uh, that I want to bring forth to you. It seems that this distinguished priest who'd lived a life of faithfulness and, you know, of chastity there in the, in the, in the church, and he was a good guy, and, and uh, he, he died. And when he died, he got the grand tour and then uh, the angel says, so what do you want to do now that you're here? And he says, you know what, I'd, I'd love to read some ancient church documents. Yeah. Okay, yeah, well, we have a whole library for that. Here's the library angel. Uh, he'll help you out with that. And so he goes in, and he goes in this beautiful library, and there the, the church fathers, all their writings are there, categorized and ready for him to read. And so he finds himself a volume, and he sits down in a very comfortable chair. He has his good reading there. He has good coffee there. He's perfectly content. This is heaven for him. And the angel leaves him. And then it happens. The angel who's back there, the librarian angel who's behind the desk, and you got to know what that angel spends his time doing. Shh, you know how librarians are, right? The, I married a librarian, that's why I say that. The li- and she was an angel. Wow, I could go the whole way on this, couldn't I, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's better than the joke I'm going to tell you. Anyway, so here the librarian angel is there at the desk, and he hears these screams coming. And so immediately, he does what any good librarian angel would do. He runs toward the noise, and he gets there, and here's the priest. And the priest who had been sitting there reading these ancient church documents with his coffee on his nice old chair is now huddled in that chair and, and his eyes are open wide in shock and, and he's sobbing, shaking, weeping inconsolably. And, and, and between the sobs, the angel hears these, these words. The R. They left out the R. It's celebrate. Now, you responded better than the first service responded. But I think probably about now, they're like, oh, I know what that joke means now. Now I get it. Yeah, it's supposed to be celebrate, celebrate. It's a dumb joke. It's a really dumb joke, right? But it, it kind of makes me think. It makes me think, I wonder if there are things that God invites me to celebrate that I've made into something else. It's a worthy question. Are there things that God has brought to us, given to us, gifted us with, wants us to find joy in, and we kind of miss it. We kind of miss the joy. I honestly feel like the book of Revelation and all the accounting of the last days might fall into that category that God has actually invited us to celebrate as we anticipate the end of time. But when we read the book of Revelation and we hear about all that's going on there, we fail to celebrate in spite of the fact that over and over and over throughout the book of Revelation, you hear heaven singing. I mean, there's one time that there's silence for about 30 minutes. But other than that, there's a lot of praise and worship going on there. And yet, throughout my life, as I've been taught about the book of Revelation and and been in Bible studies on the end times, the last days, I find that often people are like, this is a worrisome time. This is a serious time. This This is a bad time. There's a lot of wrath going on. Heaven rejoices and we worry. It's kind of weird if you think about it. There's something wrong with that picture. Likewise, I feel like communion can be that way as well. That God has actually invited us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And 
And maybe we miss that celebration part. Now, don't get me wrong. I do understand that communion is a time to reflect on Jesus' passion. And passion literally means his suffering. So I get that, that it is a time to remember that he was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So I get, I understand that, I get that. And I also understand that it is a time to do some introspective evaluation, to one should examine oneself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. And and so I understand those concepts, but I want to suggest to you also that communion is a time to celebrate what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It is absolutely not a time for us to wallow in guilt and shame because on the cross, he died to take away our guilt and our shame, to remove those things from us as far as the east is from the west. Communion is, like the Passover before it, a time for us to glory in how he spared us of his wrath and how he paid the price of our redemption. In fact, whenever God does something grand, the proper response is one of celebration. Now, I'm going to share something with you that might stretch you a little bit. Did you know that some scholars feel that when Jesus was on the cross, he sang? We know that he sang there at at the Lord's Supper, at the Passover, at the Last Supper, at communion, that meal he had. But some scholars suggest that when he was on the cross, he was singing as well, because he quotes from Psalm 22. Leonard Sweet brought this up when he spoke at Mahaffey Camp five years ago, and he was talking about Jesus being on the cross, and he says, Jesus says those words at about three in the afternoon, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that sounds like words of despair and hopelessness. But Leonard Sweet suggests that Jesus is not despairing there, that he's actually singing. He says, Psalm 22 is not, if you look at the psalm, a psalm of despair. It is a song meant to be sung of celebration. Now, I asked you a few minutes ago to open your Bibles to Psalm 22. We're going to read all 31 verses of it. I am not going to sing it to you, so you are very blessed. However, I will sing to you later. But Psalm 22 here, we're just going to read it. Let me read. Follow along as I read it. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Okay, that's pretty much the blues, right? That's that's a very, very sad kind of expression there. But let's keep going because in verse three, there is a three-letter word that begins a transition. He says, yet... Okay, even though I feel like you've forsaken me, God, yet you are enthroned as a holy one. You are the one Israel praises. That's not despair. Let's keep reading. Verse four. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. That sounds almost like celebration there. And then in verse six, he says, but I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Okay, that's pretty sad again, right? But 
Look at the first word in verse 9. Yet. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breath, from breast, from birth, I was cast upon you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Do you hear the faith in that? Do you hear the confidence? Do you have a sense of expectation there? That, that's not despair. It's hope. And in hope, the words continue. Verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no help. Now, you're going to read these next few verses and they're going to be all about trouble, but don't forget, he's asking God not to be far away in verse 11. So in verse 12, he speaks of the trouble. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of earth. Dogs pierce my hands and feet and all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Okay, that's an expression of a lot of pain. But it's not hopelessness. Because in the very next verse, verse 19, he says, But you, Lord, don't be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly and help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Do you hear the hopefulness there? Not despair. Hope. And it carries on. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. For you, from you comes the theme of my praise in great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May our hearts, your hearts, live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep treasures alive, themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Wow, that is not despair. That is hope. That is confidence. That is joy. That is what Jesus is saying from the cross. Jesus, and it's a psalm. Jesus might even be singing these words from the cross. Now, I know what you're thinking because you're intelligent people. You're thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Steve. Jesus only quotes the bad part. I mean, that's all I got there, right? When, when I, we looked at the Gospels, all you hear Jesus saying is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? but it's a song. It's a song. And if I start a song, you will finish the song. Let me give you an example. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber. <laughs> you did it out loud. Even if you hadn't done it out loud, you would have done it in your head, right? I'm done singing, but you're not. So when Jesus says those opening words of that psalm, whether he finishes it or not, he knows what it said. He wrote it, right? He's God. He wrote those words. So the entirety of the song 
is something that is laid before us, and it is a song of confidence, a song of hope, a song of victory, a song of celebration, and he's singing it from the cross. I'm amazed. I am absolutely amazed. It kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense that he would celebrate what he's doing on a cross while he is hanging on a cross. It's kind of sad to think that we would not see the celebratory nature of his death when we are the recipients of the bounty thereof. And it's kind of sad that we would see, we would fail to see that even about the end of the age. Today, as we celebrate communion, I want to remind you of the reasons we have to celebrate. And I want to do that by turning your attention to Revelation chapter 19. So you've been in Psalm 22. Now you can go the whole way to the end of the Bible and come back a couple chapters to Revelation chapter 19. We'll be there for the remainder of the morning. And I'm going to talk to you about the fact that we have much to celebrate. And the first thing I see in Revelation 19 is that we celebrate God's salvation. Look at verse 1. The latter part of it says, Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Salvation. Every time I think of this, it seems, I remember the story of the late theologian R.C. Sproul when he happened to be speaking, teaching at Temple University. He's a theologian and he's teaching theology at this university, Temple University outside of Philadelphia, and he happens to be walking from one end of campus to the other to get to the faculty lounge, and that guy jumps out and says, brother, are you saved? You know that guy, right? Think of the irony there. He's talking to R.C. Sproul, a theologian. Are you saved? And, and you know, Sproul's just minding his own business, walking along, kind of startled him. And he says, I just didn't know how to respond to him. And I found the words that came out of my mouth were, saved from what? And here's what's interesting. The man was taken aback. And he replied, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> how would you answer Sproul's question? Saved from what? What is it exactly that Jesus saves us from? And I think one of the most universal and biblically accurate answers to that question is that he saves us from his wrath. God saves us from his own wrath. The salvation we have is salvation from the kinds of things we have read about in the previous 18 chapters of the book of Revelation. So after the book of Revelation spells out how the wrath of God, remember the bowls of wrath of God, are poured out on all of creation, after spending all that ink on that, there's this multitude of people in chapter 19, verse 1, where it says, I heard a shout, what surrounded, sounded like a great roar, multitude of people shouting, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God. And we, along with them, Celebrate that we're not objects of God's wrath. If you're trusting in Christ, his blood to cover for your sin, if your faith is in him and you're following him, then you can celebrate that. In fact, you must celebrate that because that's great news. We celebrate God's salvation. We do it when we read the book of Revelation. We do it at communion. We have much to celebrate. Second, we celebrate God's justice. And again, I see it in this passage. I'll read verse two in a moment. But before that, I want to just say this. It is a good thing. Listen to this sentence. It is a good thing that God dishes out justice. It's not a good thing necessarily when we do it. 
In fact, the book of Romans says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So we don't try to enact revenge on other people to even the score. We leave that in God's hands. He manages that for us. And when he does, when he enacts justice, it's not just okay that he does that. It is good that he does that. That's what verse 2 is telling us. After it praises God in verse 1, after God is praised in verse 1, in verse 2 it says, For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged her on her the blood of his servants. It's good that he has done that. Now, let me, uh, I want to speak particularly to those of us who are a little bit younger, like me and the rest of us who are younger, right? (laughs) Your ability to appreciate the concept of God executing justice on creation will likely align with the amount of injustice you have experienced or observed. Do you understand that? Let me say it again. Your ability to appreciate this concept of divine justice being executed on creation will likely align with the amount of injustice you have experienced or observed. If you have been protected and sheltered all your life, you might object to the idea of God enacting his justice. However, when you become familiar with evil and when you see it firsthand, you will understand. And you will see, it's not just okay that God executes justice. It's essential that he does. And it's good that he does. And you can celebrate that. Because when injustice flourishes, when evil triumphs, there's no celebrating that. But when God executes justice, then we celebrate. Because that's a good thing. Because when he executes his justice, evil is destroyed. We have much to celebrate. We celebrate the destruction of evil. You see it in verse 3. It says, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Did you notice it doesn't just say forever? It says forever and ever. It doesn't just that, that evil is vanquished for a few years, for times, times, and a half time, or for a millennial, or for a generation, or, or, or for a season of life. It is forever and ever. When the events of the book of Revelation are concluded, evil will be no more. All that will be there is a wisp of smoke coming up from her. And she is gone, never to return. We have much to celebrate. We celebrate God's salvation, his justice, the destruction of evil. And we celebrate the certainty of the conclusion that that this is is over. Look at verse 4 because it's a really important verse. It seems to be kind of like an aside but, but it's important because apart from God, I don't think anyone in heaven has more authority than the 24 elders. And as far as those four living creatures, they exist to be in the throne room. So whatever those guys are saying is pretty important. Their voice is important. And they're pleased with this celebration. It says in verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen. Hallelujah. Now, there's a couple different ways to view the word Amen. Most of the time we think of it as, so be it. You know, God, we'd ask that you do this, please do this. In Jesus' name, so be it. That's how we understand amen. There's another way to say amen. And that way means it's done. It's done. 
It's done. Do you hear what that other phrase is for it's done? It is finished. So here in verse 4, when the 24 elders and the four living creatures say, Amen, hallelujah, they're saying it is done. Hallelujah. It is finished. And if that wasn't enough, there's verse 5 where it says, A voice comes from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, both great and small. We celebrate the words, it is finished, both at the cross and at the end of the age. We have much to celebrate. We celebrate being united with Christ. There's a wedding that happens here. Read about it. Look at verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb. And remember, Jesus is the Lamb. The wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, These are the true words of God. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Wedding. It speaks of oneness with God. You know, the very first wedding ever was was done by God himself. He looked at Adam and he says, it is not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to make a partner for him. And then he said, that's good. And he says this. He says, the two will become one flesh. The two will become one. You know, some older couples in our congregation, I'm just going to pick Ted and Donna Sunderland because they're on our heart right now. We're praying for them. They've been married for 790 years. Okay? And the two are one. If you've been around it, you know it. The two are one. It's a beautiful thing. I want you to think of the most beautiful marriage, most beautiful wedding, most beautiful couple you know that have been around a while and have the years under their belt and have become one. And I want to suggest to you that the oneness that the two of them experience together is but a shadow of the oneness that we will experience with Christ our Lord. Wow, we have much to celebrate. Much to celebrate. We celebrate the victory of Christ. Now, I want to make sure you get this part, okay? All that is done in the book of Revelation and all that is accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ is not for your benefit primarily. Hmm, really? I thought God loved me and demonstrated his love to me in this. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. I thought it kind of was for my benefit that Jesus died. I thought that's what was going on. If it was all about you, then there's a, there's a hymn in Revelation that goes like this. This is how it would go if it was all about you. I was needy, I was needy, I was... It doesn't say that. Here's what it says. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy, O God, to receive glory, glory and honor, glory and honor and power. Because it is always all about him. Rick Warren was right. It's not about you. It's always about him. So then what? Where do I fit into the the picture? Paris Reed says it well in what I consider to be the best sermon ever recorded. 
except for the Sermon on the Mount, which was recorded in, in ink. Reedhead says this. Just listen to this sentence. When he makes this, this case that it's not about you, but it's about the glory of God, he says, you may ask, wait, didn't God intend to make man happy? Yes, but as a byproduct, not as the prime product. The prime product is the glory of God. The prime product is the victory of the Lamb. The prime product is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, who was, who is, and is to come. It is all about Him. And that's what the rest of this speaks to you about. I mean, let's just start at verse 10. Follow along as I read Revelation 19, starting verse 10. He's speaking to this angel. John is hearing from this angel. And this is so overwhelming what he sees here. at this wedding supper of the Lamb. It says in verse 10, Then I fell at his feet and worshipped him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy that bears testimony to Jesus. I saw heaven standing open. And it's almost like right here, it's almost like in verse 11, he says, speaking of Jesus, he says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. And then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fire, fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse, and the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Whew. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the king of kings and Lord of lords. And our happiness, our redemption, is a byproduct of his glory. It's a beautiful thing. And we celebrate that. We celebrate it because it's his victory and it belongs to him. And it is right to celebrate it. I want to talk to you for a minute about the way we celebrate. I want to say first, we celebrate corporately. By that, I mean not alone. Think of the word corporately, because it's a word we don't use every day. Think of the word corporately as kind of standing against the word personally. I can personally go out and do a job, or I could do it corporately with some of my friends. We worship both personally and corporately. 
But I think we worship best corporately. I say that because of verse 5. It says, praise to our God. And here's the phrase, all you servants, all you his servants who fear him, both great and small. All. I love the NFL. I love football. I love watching it. There's something, though, that happens in football in these past couple years that makes me crazy, and I think it's because I'm old. End zone celebrations, you know? Ah, some of the old timers are nodding right along with me, right? Yeah, right, yeah. I I think of, I don't know if it was, I don't know who it was that said this. might have been Vince Lombardi who said, when you score a touchdown, act like you've been there before. I get that, you know? It just makes sense to me. But... (laughs) As silly as those choreographed end zone celebrations may feel to me, I do understand why they do them. I do understand why they do them. Because when something fantastic happens, you want to celebrate with someone else who's been involved. The last time that the Penguins won the Stanley Cup, (laughs) my wife and I have a TV that's identical to this one in our living room. And I can remember, you know, we're both on our feet by this point. And I'm standing like right here, and she's standing like right here, and we're like counting it down. You know, there's the clock, 10, 9, you know, and all the action on the ice, and we're just like so thrilled that everything's going the way it's going. You know, this happens at the end of every, every Stanley Cup championship. The Pens have won thousands of them, probably. No, but this is what we do, right? And when that horn blew, and we won the Stanley Cup, I picked up my wife. I just went, I grabbed her like this, and she put her arms around my neck, And I picked her up, and I did this. And her legs went out like that. You know what I'm talking about? And then I put her down. (laughs) And I was just so glad she was there. Because swinging with nobody is not as fun. (laughs) You understand that we worship corporately because it is joyful to be together and because we enjoy one another. And what God did for us, he did for us all. And so when I read the verse there in verse 5 where it says, praise our God, all you his servants, I understand. Yeah, yeah, both great and small, everyone, everyone, praise him. And that being together isn't just like at the end of the age that we do that together. It's throughout our lives that we do it together. I have this line I say, never do a ministry alone that you can do with a friend. You know, because together is better. Together is really good. In fact, Jesus, when he's talking about the Passover, he says this to his disciples. He says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover, see those next two words, with you before I suffer. With you before I suffer. You can take communion alone. You can do that. Maybe you've done that. I don't have a problem with you doing that. Buzz Aldrin took communion on the moon all by himself. I don't know if you knew that about the first moon flight, right? Moon landing, rather. Yeah. But just as the Passover meal was meant to be taken together with people you loved and people who were like-minded, God-fearing like-minded people, so communion is something we take together. And that's why I say that line. I say, please hold your portion until all have been served, and then we'll take it together. Sometimes I add the word in unison, I could say in union. I could say corporately, together. Because that's how we celebrate. We celebrate corporately. We celebrate enthusiastically. And by that, I'm not saying you need to clap your hands and jump up and down. You can do it if you want to. 
Little Callie was in the aisle today, and the music was playing, and she was kind of bouncing a little bit. I'm not sure what she was doing. And her dad, Tim, got out, and I thought, Tim's going to shake it down right here. He's going to dance with his daughter. That would have been okay, you know. And maybe you've seen in our church, I've seen it dozens of times when, when little kids kind of get out in the aisle, you know, and there's always a mom saying, get back in here, get back in here. And I'm like, man, have at it. You want to do that, have at it. But you don't have to do that. You understand? Enthusiasm is not a matter necessarily of your posture, physically speaking. It's a matter of your heart, spiritually speaking. I am so glad Jesus died for my sins. I am so psyched that he did that. I am so thankful that I am not an object of his wrath, but rather a recipient of his grace. I love that. And it makes me want to tell him, woo, that's what it makes me want to do. Yeah. But I see it enthusiastically in verse 6 where it says, I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. That's loud, right? That's loud. Shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. And that volume is combined of two different things. Number one, it's not electronic volume, but I'm, all, I'm okay with that. It's just the massive number of people. The second thing, first, the massive number of voices. Second, the enthusiastic hearts that shouted, shouted, hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty. We celebrate enthusiastically. And third, we celebrate pure-heartedly. Remember, What was it that God destroyed at the cross? Evil, right? Evil. Remember what he destroyed in chapters 1 through 18 of Revelation and even talked about here at the end of 19? Evil. Evil. That's what his wrath is poured out on. And so as we celebrate these things, as we celebrate his victory, as we celebrate communion, we do so with hearts that have been made pure by his blood, not by our own doing. And you can get confused about that if you carelessly read verse 7. But note in verse 7, it is purity that is given to us, not purity that they have earned. Well, look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, here's the phrase, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. What that fine linen represents is the body and blood of Christ. And a purity that comes when we turn to him and trust him to forgive our sins. And so we recognize the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, I understand that circumstances often influence how we celebrate and even whether we celebrate. And I understand it's very easy to celebrate sometimes, like at a graduation, (laughs) that's a fun celebration, right? Or maybe when you get a job, that would be something to celebrate, right? Or at a wedding, provided that you approve of the man that's marrying your daughter, that's a great time to celebrate, right? Or when you find healing, that's a great time to celebrate. Or at a baby dedication, that's a great time to celebrate. Other times I understand that celebration can be difficult. Like when you feel high pressure at work on the job. Or when your family isn't following after Jesus like you hoped they would. Or when you yourself are experiencing sickness or when your heart is heavy or even your heart is broken or when you see loved ones who are failing and not thriving. But hear this. Celebration of God and what he has done and what he does today and what he will do tomorrow, that celebration is always appropriate. And that's what we celebrate, whether we look to the end of time or whether we look to the communion meal.